I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. Econofact was founded in 2017 to bridge the gap between the work of top research economists and the public. Our goal is to create a better informed public by providing accessible economic frameworks and policy relevant statistics. But we are certainly not alone in these efforts. Over the past few decades, there have been a rising number of columnists, bloggers, and reporters who also focus on economic issues. They draw from both their own background in economics and the work of others. One of the most prominent of these is John Cassidy, who has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1995. John writes trenchantly and clearly on a wide range of economic issues and on other topics as well. He's the author of two books, Dot Con, How America Lost Its Mind and Money, and How Markets Fail, The Rise and Fall of Free Market Economics. The latter was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and was just reissued. John, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thanks very much for inviting me on, Michael. It's great to have you here. I really enjoyed How Markets Fail. It offers a really interesting and accessible overview of important trends in economic research, beginning with Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, through recent work on understanding the role of information, the role of psychology, and the failures that can come from financial markets. Throughout, there's this theme of the tension between abstract theorizing that shows the efficiency, but not necessarily the desirability, of unfettered free market economics, and the messy reality of the real world in which unfettered markets can go awry. The first edition of this book was published in the wake of the 2008 financial and economic crisis, and I imagine that this event was a motivation for your work. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it was. I mean, I've been um, studying economics often, writing about it even at that stage, off and on for about 20 years. But um, the crisis itself, because it sort of was such a repudiation of a certain type of economics, it sort of spurred me on to actually write a book about all this stuff. I'd actually written one of the first things I ever wrote for The New Yorker, which was back in 96, was a piece about um, the state of economics, macro. When I talk about economics, I'm largely talking about macroeconomics. As a macroeconomist, I enjoy that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, because that's what I write about mainly. Macro. I do do some micro pieces, but when we're talking about economic policy and the great ideological debates, etc., it's largely macroeconomics I was talking about. So I had a. I basically come from a sort of Keynesian background. Um, and I, I was very skeptical a lot of a lot of the um, macroeconomics that had been taught from the 80s onwards anyway. And this seemed to sort of the financial crisis spurred me on to actually write a book about it all and where this free market economics came from, both in its original um, incarnation all the way back to Adam Smith and its more recent reincarnation in the 60s and 70s out of Chicago and Minnesota and other schools. And um, so I thought if I put that sort of intellectual narrative together with a, a story about the alternative school of economics, which I call reality-based economics, which is more empirical, more Keynesian, 
And if I added that in with then a story about how it all went wrong in the financial crisis, I could, you know, do a sort of reasonable length book. It turned out that there are three different books. So my book is really three books in one. It's a history of um, free market economics, history of um, sort of, I guess, what you'd call in America, Keynesian economics, and a, a history of the financial crisis. And the trick was trying to sort of integrate those all together. Well, it's very clear from How Markets Fail that you're really well versed in economic theories, maybe to an unusual degree among journalists. How does this knowledge of ivory tower economics inform your reporting? Well, I mean, you know, I don't really distinguish between the two. I guess I, I sort of was on a sort of academic track for quite a while. I did an undergraduate degree in history and economics in Oxford, which is a sort of version of PPE. Um, and that was largely Keynesian economics, I would say, and a lot of empirical stuff. Then I spent a year, I came to America on a two-year fellowship, the first year of which I spent at Harvard. So I, I audited the uh, Harvard PhD economics program. Uh, Larry Summers was there at the time, various others. And um, that was sort of an introduction to American-style mathematical economics. Uh, it was a very rigorous program, obviously, the first-year PhD program. Managed to turn me off economics pretty quickly. I decided, uh, I mean, academic economics. Um, and I, I'd never intended to, to sort of do an economics PhD. I was thinking about doing maybe an economic history PhD or something. But I decided instead to go into journalism. And um, I spent about five, ten years just doing financial economics journalism. Then I, I was back in America by that stage. I went to NYU and did the master's program there as a two years master's program, which was also reasonably rigorous and very, very mainstream, sort of mainstream trade theory, mainstream macro, mainstream micro, etc. Um, pretty mathematical as well. So I, I do have a master's degree. And then since then, I'm part sort of part. I would say I'm part sort of um, trained economist and part autodidact. I mean, I I spend all my spare time reading economics and economic history. I was on the subway yesterday reading a history of um, Indian about Indian economic history because I'm reading about a an Indian economist at the moment, J. C. Kumar Para, who was one of the sort of Gandhi's original advisors and is sort of a uh, founder of no growth economics. So I've always been sort of ranging widely in my personal reading and then I try and integrate that I wouldn't say I try and integrate it but obviously that just provides the intellectual background for my writing I've always been interested in policy debates etc and economic theory obviously feeds into feeds into those debates indirectly and sometimes directly so when you're on the New York City subway reading this obscure economics book did you find people sort of moving away from you and I, 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 I keep the cover. I keep the cover down so people don't think I'm too much of an uber nerd. Yeah, well, and I had my daughter. I had my daughter with me too, so she was saying, "Dad, cover up that boring book. You know, you'll embarrass us on the subway." I guess they're, you know, New York City subway is known for weirdos, and it's a acceptance of them. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it's actually fascinating. I mean, it was uh, it's a a lacuna in my uh, knowledge. I really don't know much about India and Indian history and Indian economic history. So it was actually fascinating to read. You published the first edition of How Markets Fail in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008. And you talk about this difference between what you call utopian economics and reality-based economics. It seems to me that economists were really chastened by the 2008 crisis and the subsequent downturn. And they're focusing more on market imperfections. For example, the interplay of 
macroeconomics and financial markets. Would you agree with that and how macroeconomics especially has evolved? Yes, I, I, w- I would. I, I think it's definitely been a big change since 2008 in some ways. I mean, I remember going to one of the most just uh, gratifying pieces I ever wrote for the New Yorker was back in 2010. I went to Chicago. Obviously, I'd written a lot about Chicago in the book and I interviewed some of the uh, high priests of uh, Chicago economics, Richard Posner, Gary Becker, Gene Famer and others. They were very hospitable. I mean, one thing I would give Chicago, I think they, you know, they, it's a very uh, serious, open place. They're interested in intellectual debates. You know, Posner and Becker were very open about it. They said this is a big blow to a certain type of Chicago economics. Posner actually wrote a book about um, how the sort of the financial deregulation had led to had led to the crisis. So, you know, if even some of the people in Chicago were were uh, admitting that something had gone wrong in sort of mainstream macro or whatever. I don't think anybody else in the profession could then stand up and say, well, you know, that's not true. So I think there have been various reactions to it. I mean, you see there are, um, in the new introduction I I wrote for the new edition, I wrote about a couple of um, initiatives in economics in Europe. Largely, there's the core project, which is, you know, a sort of reality-based economics project, I would say. In the US also, uh, Danny Roderick and... um, some of his colleagues have set up a new um, sort of economics program, which again, I would call reality-based economics. So I think there has been a shift inside the profession. How far it's gone, I'm not sure. I mean, I still think a lot of basic undergraduate economics is still taught under the old um, sort of uh, free markets, plan demand um, framework, and people don't necessarily learn about um, financial bubbles and... uh, externalities, etc., until second or third courses, in which, of course, a lot of people don't take those second or third courses. So basically, you're making a strong pitch for people to take the second and third courses in economics, which I would strongly endorse as well. Yeah, or else teach the first course from a different perspective. I mean, I, I've always thought, you know, you um, it'd be more interesting and more productive to sort of integrate some of the market failure stuff in the first course as well. So you don't just end up with a sort of Adam Smith, uh, Milton Friedman view of the world if you do economics 101. And I think maybe in some places they do that, but um, in other places they don't. Well, you and I were in graduate programs in economics at roughly the same time in the early 80s when the rational expectations revolution was really in full force. But since then, there's really been a turn towards much more empirical work in economics and in macroeconomics as well. So it seems like, you know, defending my profession a little bit, it seems like there has been this realization that we need to look at data. And also it's been more possible to look at data with the advent of the compute, you know, the, the digitalization of lots of data and the access to it is very easy now. No, I mean, I think you're right about that, obviously. I mean, on the micro side, the whole, um, you know, experimental literature, which has just been rewarded with the um, economics Nobel this year, of course, is, I mean, that, that's, now in a sort of, uh, that, that exercises a sort of same degree of hegemony that the rational expectations uh, sort of approach used to do in the 80s, I think. I mean, it's very difficult, I'm told, to get these sort of empirical papers published these days which don't have some sort of randomized experiment attached to them. So that that is a big change. In macro itself, I think there's been a big sort of intellectual effort to move beyond simple dynamic equilibrium models and to sort of integrate um Heterogeneous agents is obviously an active area of research. 
and there's been a move away from the sort of some in more policy oriented terms the bank of england for example introduced basically a dynamic general equilibrium model of the british economy which completely missed the um, completely missed the financial crisis of course because you didn't have a financial sector because those models didn't have a financial sector um, there's been a, a rowing away from that i think um, in policy terms i think it's pretty difficult if you're giving a lecture to the chairman of the bank of england or the chairman of the fed these days to say you better do x because our um, real business cycle model tells you that you know this is what you should do and i think you see that you see jerome powell obviously he's not an economist he knows quite a lot about economics i think but i think he takes with a pinch of salt a lot of the um, sort of old school um, economic economic theories so i think i think that is positive um, i'm not saying i'm not making the argument that there hasn't been a big change and the other huge change i think we've seen is the whole sort of um, emphasis on inequality which is a data driven thing as well if you go back to Piketty and people, you know, and, um, you know, the whole school of um, tracing the evolution of inequality since the 1890s to today, where, um, with Anthony Atkinson in the UK and Zuckman, and there's, there's a whole school of them there. That's an empirically based uh, school as well. It's not um, based on any real theory. There's not really a, a big fashionable economic macro theory uh, inequality based macro theory it's basically look at the trends here look at the um you know top one percent top 0.1 percent etc look at the gini coefficients so that's an empirical development as well yeah there's probably an interplay between empirics and theory where empirics informs theory and theory informs empirics how you start to look at the data and so on but let's talk about yeah, some no. particular issues um you had a recent column in the new yorker and discussing the way the pandemic has shifted power to labor after decades during which the median wage has been stagnant and inequality has risen. So this relates to the point that you were making about a greater focus on inequality now. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that this represents a sea change or is it just going to be an effect that will abate as the pandemic becomes less of a dominant factor? I mean, that's a, a very good question. I don't have a definitive answer to it. My sort of um intuition is that it's going to be more than just a one-off because i think there are various factors it's not just the pandemic i mean if you look at um globalization for example the in, some of the indices of globalization started to go down in sort of 2012 if you look at trade world trade versus world gdp the the um it's actually after the financial crisis the great financial crisis when the peak was and i think the pandemic has uh, illustrated some of the, um, you know, the dangers of hyper-globalization. We've seen it, obviously, with the supply chain, etc. So if globalization is going to be tamed even to a slight degree, I think that has an impact on, on the um, labor share and labor's bargaining power. Because I do think the sort of threat of offshoring, even when it wasn't real, uh, was a huge factor in um, the sort of, hegemony of um, of capital in in the 90s and 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 those and um, to the extent that gets reversed i think that's going to have an impact on labor also you see another huge change i think is is in the fed policy and the commitment to real full employment i mean i think the other factor which undermined labor as well as globalization was the uh, milton friedman um, natural rate of unemployment model 
you know, the Fed seeing the natural rate of unemployment at 5.5%. 5.5% is a high rate of unemployment. You've got a large reserve army to go back to the old Marxian terminology. The, um, you know, Labour just didn't have much of a, uh, much bargaining leverage. It's got a hell of a lot more bargaining leverage when the unemployment rate's 3% or 3.5% than it does when it's 3.5.5 or 6. So you see from 2015 onwards, when the unemployment rate gets down to very low, you immediately see uh, the wages starting to rise, especially at the bottom of the income distribution, the wage share starting to rise. So we're back to sort of, you know, we're, we're talking about maybe getting back to levels of unemployment we last saw in the 60s. When, rage, when wages were still rising. And, you know, we basically had 30, 40 years of, um, of um, monetary policy aimed at stamping out inflation at all costs. If that approach to monetary policy has gone for good, and I'm not saying it has, well, the test case is going to be in the next couple of years, I think that will also have a big impact on, um, on labor share and uh, wages. Yeah, we have a number of uh, Econofact Chats podcasts where we address these issues. We have one with Jeff Fuhrer, who spent decades in the Federal Reserve System talking about the Fed's new uh, right. uh, framework. We have uh, a, a podcast with Paul Krugman in which he talks about the way in which globalization may have affected uh, the median wage. But he also points out that it was other things as well. For example, the collapse of unionization in the United States and technological change. So yeah, no, they're all multifaceted issues in many ways, right? Definitely. But economists for 20 years basically just said this is technical progress. Um, I mean, I think that's where you know, I, I remember back in the early 90s when you were to ask about all this stuff, it was all, you know, it was um, basically capital bias. Technical progress was the explanation for everything. It's only in recent years, I think, that people, mainstream economists, have started to look again at the impact of globalization and, as you say, the impact of institutional changes like um, attacks on the labor laws and attacks on the unions, etc. I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we've had a huge shift in the distribution of income over the last 40 years. It would be very unusual if it was a sort of unimodal explanation. We basically had a completely different political economy imposed after 1979 globalization, different monetary policy, different domestic policies, plus the technology shock of uh, computerization and subsequently the internet. So it, we basically had a whole new economy. And I think, you know, it would be, it is oversimplistic to just emphasize one of those factors to the, uh, to the omission of the rest. Another issue that you've been writing about recently is um, the infrastructure. And we've just seen some infrastructure bills passed Congress. Rather than focusing on the politics of this, let me go back to your reading of Adam Smith and others about the appropriate role for the government. How has your knowledge of these economists influenced your views, especially in the context of the provision of public goods and a social safety net? Um, that's, a good, that's a good question. I mean, Adam Smith himself, of course, <clears throat> even though he's seen as the great free market economist, which he was a great free market economist, made an exception for public goods. Um, was the original um, sort of economist to make the argument that there are certain types of goods. He didn't use the phrases that we use today, non-excludability, non-rivalness. But he, in the language of his day, he said there are certain goods <laughs> which benefit the community, which he doesn't pay any private individuals to make for various reasons. And the government has a rush... That's the rationale for government um, to provide those. He, provided, he pointed to defence, 
I think he may have also mentioned lighthouses, although I'm not sure about that. But basically, he provided... He didn't mention a, the internet, did he? He didn't mention the internet. No. But um, defence defense and the internet are, you know, obviously uh, very closely linked because uh, the the um, Department of Defence originally developed the ARPANET and the, right. and the internet. Um, so I would, to answer your question, I think my view of public goods is sort of a market-based one, that when private markets can provide goods, we should let them do it. And when the markets can't provide them for various reasons, um, we should have public provision. I mean, the other economist I would point to along those lines, an old economist on this, is uh, Arthur Pigou. Um, He's now known in the US for the Pigouvian tax, tax on um, carbon. And um, Pigou, in his own time, was much more famous for his arguments with Keynes about uh, macroeconomics, he was uh, Keynes's predecessor as the sort of most eminent Cambridge economist in the uh, start of the 20th century. But I think in, in historical terms, his big contribution was that he uh, he wrote the first book about market failures in which he emphasised um, spillovers, negative externalities, as, as we call them these days. Uh, the example he focused on was uh, railway tracks and how they, in those days, there were steam engines and how they used to give off sparks, which would set the neighboring fields on fire. Um, but the principles are all the same. The, um, you know, the prices, you know, in that case, the contracts with which the railway companies were given, uh, didn't internalize all the costs and benefits of the, um, you know, of the transactions. So I see climate change, uh, you know, a stable climate as basically the ultimate public good. And the uh, climate change, to use the words of uh, Nicholas Stern of the Stern Report, you know, is the greatest sort of market failure we've ever seen. Yeah, we have um, a number of memos and podcasts on the carbon tax, which is a Peruvian tax. And I found those chapters in your book. I didn't know that much about Pegu as a person. And it was actually kind of sad the way he seemed to be eclipsed and his ideas fell out of favor. And yet now those ideas are very, very important and really Part of the public debate. Yeah, I mean, Keynes was very cruel to him, actually. You know, Keynes was very arrogant and um, used him as a sort of a pinata for, for um, attacking sort of what he called classical economics. Um, so that Pigou basically gave up um, the public intellectual role and just retreated into his rooms in Cambridge and was, was very rarely seen in his later years. Yeah, it's very, it's a, a sad story. In our last few minutes, John, I'd like to turn to sort of what you and we at Econofact are trying to do. Both of us have a mission and goals that are quite similar to make economic ideas accessible to a broad public and to show the relevance of those ideas for issues of the day. So we have a view of our audience as we curate our memos, our podcasts, and our videos, people who want to understand these issues from a reliable source without political slant, people who who might not have much background in economics, but can follow a logical argument. What's your view of your audience, and how do you think about them when you're writing a column? Yeah, it's a it's a very good question. I mean, I try to uh, keep the uh, audience in my mind as sort of a, a general interest reader who is interested in economics, but um, hasn't necessarily received anything beyond the Economics 101, if he's even received that. A lot of the readers of The New Yorker, certainly in the old days before the internet, tended to be sort of English, English graduates and um, arts graduates who didn't actually know much economics at all. Uh, but even on the internet, of course, 
it's different because you know that um, professional economists are going to be read the pe- reading the pieces as well. So I do do occasionally a more dense piece, which is more aimed at the um, economics, e- the economists among the audience. I did a piece a few years ago about John Nash, um, which was you know pretty dense and a sort of explanation of Nash equilibrium and modern game theory. But I, I don't do that very often. Most of my columns, which are policy-based, uh, are aimed just at the general reader and uh, try and obviously have my own views, but um, which when I'm writing a policy column, you know, I'm paid to give my own views. But even when I do give a certain view, I try to back it up with, you know, this is the sort of economic argument underlying the view rather than just being, um, you know, sort of a straightforward political argument. Well, I think you succeeded admirably in how markets fail. I could see how it'd be very accessible to a general reader. And as a PhD level economist, I also enjoyed it quite a bit. So, oh, thanks. Well, I guess I guess that one worked. It's, it's very hard. I'm sure you find the same thing on your podcast. It, it's, it's very hard to know where to pitch things. And um, I think on the internet, you can maybe be more flexible because you know, because the long tail people will find it if they if they're interested in it. But I come from an old, I basically come from a mass journal, mass market journalism. I was in newspapers before the New Yorker, so I still remember what they used to tell me on Fleet Street, which was you know think of a guy on the on the underground the subway in New York, with sort of with a newspaper in one hand and his hand holding on with the other, and you're trying to keep his attention while he reads the paper and you know the trains rattling around and people are bumping into him. So I, I always try and keep that sort of image in in my head too, which uh, also teaches you to you know not write at too great a length, although I am guilty of that in some of my New Yorker pieces. Well, the problem now is that my image of somebody on a subway is you reading the, about this obscure Indian economist. <laughs> so it might mean that we pitch things very differently now, but I'll try to... I'll try to remember that original Fleet Street one as well. So. Well, that, that was, I mean, as you say, I was right. That's for a mass market newspaper. But I, I, I'm thinking of it more in terms of a general, a general, you know, an educated person, but who isn't an economist, sitting down on an evening, saying, you know, this infrastructure bill, what the heck's it all about? You know, is it really a good idea to pass it? And uh, what are the arguments for and against? Well, and I try and provide a thousand words on that. That's what we're trying to do as well. So good luck to both of us in informing the public and. Thank you very much for joining me today, John. Thanks very much, Michael. It was fun. I enjoyed it too. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.